I want to continue from our last teaching by thinking about how the Holy Spirit transforms us. However, to do that, I want to remind us of something of, well, of how the Holy Spirit is presented to us in the Bible and how we relate to that in, in the contemporary world. And, and I think you'll agree when I say that it's not always easy to know how to talk about and also understand the Holy Spirit. So perhaps the best place to begin is at the beginning. And by that, I mean the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, the text, you probably uh, have heard this before, uh, is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, this is a deeply theological introduction to the Bible. In these few verses, basically, they, they shape the opening passages of Genesis, but they also give us a massive piece of biblical worldview. If we pay attention to the right things and properly, they're going to help us make sense of what we're talking about in this teaching. There is theology just, just there in those few verses that we should focus upon. Because this is how the Bible sees the world, and the Spirit is actively involved right at the beginning. In English, we talk about this word spirit, which, which actually is a word we borrowed from Latin. And, and when we hear the word spirit, we tend to think in terms of, of like spirits or ghosts and, and, and the like. In the biblical languages, however, the language used for what we now translate spirit is language that actually speaks of breath, air, wind. And this is worth paying attention to. It's important. The biblical writers use the language of breath and air and wind because it's, it's really descriptive and appropriate. Like, how do you describe spirit? And as soon as you try, generally your language starts to fail you. It, it, it's sort of difficult to make sense of. So, but using the language of breath, it's not only helpful, it's actually really clever by the ancient writers. We all know that we need breath. We rarely see our breath, but we know it's there. More significantly, perhaps, we know when it's not there. We can't hold it or really shape it, but breath is there and it's keeping us alive. So think about what the biblical writers are saying when they take the language of breath to describe the presence of God in the world. I guess we can't see it, but it's there and it's keeping us alive. Like it's a highly descriptive metaphor of life, of sustenance, of energy. And then the creation story, it tells us that the spirit hovers. It's there, it's present, but it's kind of hovering above everything. So our opening picture of God's world is presented to us like this. We have this, this created order that we see being shaped in Genesis, and then hovering right there in the presence of that created order is the Spirit. Now, don't rush past this image of creation and the Spirit, because I'm going to suggest that this is how the Bible authors are going to think about reality from here on out. Creation and the Spirit 
just hovering present there. In fact, the next 66 books, I would argue, are working from this perspective, that there essentially is a physical reality, what we're calling creation. And then on top of that, or hovering above that, there's a spiritual, well, a, a real spiritual reality that's non-physical. It's the spirit. So the spirit is hovering over this creation kind of like exactly as is described by the poetics of Genesis chapter 1. But really, if you think about it, what it's saying there then is that there are two dimensions to reality. There's this dimension of earth and dirt and physical things, things you can hold, things you can touch, things you can even smell. And then there's another dimension to reality that the Bible works from. It calls a spiritual reality. So physical the, the, the creation, and spiritual, the spirit, both present as part of God's creation. This, this is actually a really common way to view the world, uh, it, a worldview that basically says there are two dimensions going on, a physical and a non-physical. This is, this is actually the most common worldview in human history until Western people came along in modernity. And what happened, and, and this is now, this is predominantly the case in Europe and the English-speaking world, but what happened is that we started to transition or progress beyond a two-dimensional view of the world. And so, so what did we do? Did we, did we trade it in for something bigger, something more expansive? No, we chose to view the world smaller. We adopted a one-dimensional view of reality. And most of us that have come, particularly from an English-speaking background or an English-speaking educational context, will be trained from our very youngest age to see the world in one dimension. There's this dimension which we previously called creation, and that's it. It's called real, and then there's not real. So when you talk about earth and dirt and smells and things you can touch and things you can hold, that's real, we would say. That's tangible. We can talk about that. We can test that. We can engage and react with that. But if you open up a conversation about something spiritual, about something other, something non-physical, you realize very quickly that you're in conversation now with somebody who says, yeah, but... We're not really talking about something real, <laughs> but are we? Because I want you to know that there's a huge difference between talking about a physical reality and a non-physical reality. There's a big difference between that and talking about a real reality and something that's not real. Physical and non-physical is not the same as real and not real. And this creates a challenge for people like you and me, perhaps. In fact, for anyone interested in spiritual things, this is challenging. It's not exclusive to Christianity, but we live and breathe and move in a worldview that constantly wants to insist to us that there is one dimension to the world. But yet you, you want to talk about two-dimensional aspects of the world. You want to explore and think about a world of spirit, a world where God is hovering, or perhaps where God is present and nearby. Now, maybe you've engaged with this sort of conversation in your day-to-day -day life. Perhaps one day, you know, you told somebody, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to church, or I'm, I'm watching a church service on YouTube. And people, like, people generally will be polite to you, and perhaps they will, 
But you, you maybe still feel this sense that you're now being treated differently. Like I've regularly encountered the response which says, well, you know, it's nice for people that they have something to believe in. And there's this sense in which belief in God, the divine, or a non-physical reality is, well, you know, it's, it's kind of for simpler people, simple people who, who need something else to believe in. And, and, you know, people like that are a bit slow or a bit backward, a little bit odd, a little bit old-fashioned. Because us smarter people, like, we know that the world is perfectly suited to fit into a one-dimensional box. And we have explained all of the world. Or have we? Because, you see, the problem, when you live in a one-dimensional worldview, is that occasionally things happen they don't quite fit within your worldview. And you have to use certain words, and actually you have to use them quite a lot. Words like coincidence. Phrases like, well, sometimes I suppose that sort of thing just happens. Because if you live with a one-dimensional view of the world, you don't always have a narrative for how to explain what we might call the hovering of the spirit. You don't have a narrative that explains that sometimes stuff happens, or sometimes God does stuff. See, and it's maybe, maybe the stuff isn't the way the rules normally work, and maybe it's a little bit different. And so we have to use words like coincidence, or, well, it's just somehow, sometimes it just happens like that. But this is a very Western problem that leaves those of us that follow God in that world feeling displaced quite regularly. If you travel, however, go a little further afield and, and you'll find different worldviews. And what you'll find is the more common worldviews you encounter elsewhere are people who say, actually, the world's not as simple as some people have tried to explain it. Sometimes it seems there is something else going on. And so many of us who have followed Jesus can relate to this. Like finding the right language is sometimes difficult hard to describe. It's very hard to describe something that we can kind of feel. It's not just something we believe in. It's something that we feel like we experience. There are moments where people will describe things that have happened to them. And when they describe those things, you can sense that they're kind of at the edge of language, but they're not describing just something they believe in. They're describing something they, they, they can feel. Just grab a person at random that follows Jesus and ask them about the moment they found that Jesus was, was their Lord and Savior. Let's use that language. And, and what you'll find is how quickly they start to talk to you, to you about how things felt. They start to talk to you about spiritual things, but in the language of, of metaphor, emotion, and, and a feeling that something was happening. Marcus Borg describes it quite helpfully like this. He says, language about the other world, you know, that other reality, language about the other world is, is necessarily metaphorical. If anything is to be communicated at all, it must be analogy to what we know or in images drawn from the ordinary world. Yet though the language is metaphorical, the realities are not. Like hopefully you can relate to this. We, we try to talk about a spiritual reality or a non-physical reality that we absolutely believe in. And, and actually, we'd even say we know exists, but our language fails us. Like It's not a new problem. 
Even in scripture, we just saw it. The language of wind and fire and breath and the experience, because language works better to describe physical dimensions of reality than it does to describe non-physical aspects of reality. Despite this, however, scripture insists on describing the world as an intersection between the physical and the non-physical. This image of the hovering spirit is the image of how it works. Both are real and both are present. They are interacting. So whether it's the Old or the New Testament, this is the view of the world that the Bible gives you. In day-to-day life, the spirit and creation are somehow interacting with each other. They are not two separate, far-off dimensions, but two dimensions that are close, that are interacting in ways perhaps that we never would have expected. Creation is being impacted upon by the spirit. So the gap, and this is what you see in scriptures, the gap between the physical and the non-physical, between creation and the spirit, is, is a narrowing gap. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this happen in all sorts of places in the form of, of these sort of spirit-filled characters that seem to experience something of a closer relationship with God. You have Moses or Elijah as examples, or the prophets. And it seems as if they're, they're carrying some sort of relationship with the Spirit of God that's, that's different. Not everybody, just a few people. And then one of these prophets turned up, a prophet called Joel, and he offers this vision of the future. In chapter 2, verse 28, Joel's, Joel offers this view. He says, I will, talking about God, he says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see what Joel is describing? He's showing the progress of the story. The gap is narrowing from a hover to a few people being empowered by the spirit to everyone being empowered by a spirit. And this, this narrowing gap of the, of the two dimensions is the framework to make a bit of sense of what's happening on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that we've talked about throughout this series and in the spin-off podcast in the midweek. This moment in the biblical story, Acts 2, is interpreted by the people there on the day as the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. The gap is narrowed. (laughs) The gospel of Jesus announces that God's spirit isn't now just hovering distant over us and interacting with a few, but now he's interacting with our lives, intersecting with with this physical reality. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 12, some of the people present in that moment, they see this intersect happening between the two realities. They see these dimensions kind of crashing into each other in some sense. They see spirit and creation intersect miraculously with, with all sorts of things going on. And they ask this question, what does this mean? And at some level, the book of Acts is the New Testament answer to that question. The lives of the followers of Jesus are completely changed. And, and some really fascinating stuff happens. Like uh, two disciples are out one day and they're walking along and they meet a beggar who, who can't walk. And he asks for money. 
But they don't give him money because they don't have any. But what they do is they, they heal his legs and he's able to walk again. Like when stuff like this starts happening, the gap is, is, is narrow. The, the gap is narrowed down. But there's also a temptation to fixate on these miraculous stories. And that's been what we've often done within church life. We fixate on these miraculous stories and assume that all the Spirit does is make miracles happen. We assume that when the non-physical spiritual reality encounters the, the creation physical reality, that life will just become permanently supernatural. But if you look more carefully, you'll notice that the change caused by the Holy Spirit is deeper than this. Their attitudes, behaviors, and boundaries are all changed. So yeah, there's miracles, but there's also a new concern for justice. There's, there's care for outsiders. Racial boundaries are, are dropped and, and changed. The first problems the early church had were related to how they served the poor and cared for the bereaved and the widowed. What was the impact of the Holy Spirit? It changed the ordinary. And I think this is important to note because, and I don't know if I can say this in a church building, <laughs> good job we're not there, right? <laughs> is that sometimes when you meet people that are really into the Holy Spirit, they can be just a little bit weird. Is that okay to say? <laughs> because, well, there's sometimes a kind of weirdness that goes on when we start to talk about the Holy Spirit. And what this does is it causes some of us to back away from anything to do with the Holy Spirit because we just don't want to be like that. But for the early church, the presence of God's Spirit was about transformation that happened in them in the ordinary like they looked for harmony between the spirit and them, between the two realities, the physical and the non-physical. You see in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, famous little phrase, they say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. So this is really important if we're trying to figure out how the Holy Spirit intersects with us as we try to be God's people. Often what we see is a separation between the two realities. It's either or. It's me or it's the Holy Spirit. You can have the Holy Spirit or you can have creation. Which reality do you want to move in? And, and we've all seen these sorts of Christianity across the years. Some forms of Christianity are, are very, very practical. They're very down to earth. In fact, they're actually so down to earth that it doesn't seem like there's anything spiritual about them at all. Uh, Parker Palmer uh, calls this functional atheism. We go to church. We might read our Bibles, but actually God's intersection with our life is essentially non-existent. So that re realistically, it just looks like we're part of a, some sort of social club or something like that. But then there's another type of Christianity, a type of hyper-spiritual Christianity, where there's this constant obsession with God speaking to us and God engaging with us. And, and we're often asking about, you know, what is God saying in this and what is God leading us to? And what you find there is that people are often ironically paralyzed because they don't do anything because they won't do anything unless they're absolutely certain that God has spoken to it. Neither of these two perspectives of Christianity fit the paradigm of Acts, which lives in a narrowed gap. Like if your Christianity has nothing spiritual about it, 
then you've kind of reduced it too much. And if it's just spiritual, yeah, it's, it's also too small. It seems to me that a great paradigm for identifying spiritual people is that they look and sound like what you see in Acts. So, so what do we really see in Acts beyond just the miracle stories that sort of kind of sometimes cloud us from seeing everything else? I think that what we see is we see change. We see transformation. The Holy Spirit fills this group of people in Jerusalem who lived separately from most of their surrounding areas, people, groups, cultures. They, they really lived divided lives. And in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit fills them. And in the first few chapters, what happens? Well, we see these early Christians now feeding the poor, selling their properties to help this, caring for the marginalized. Boundaries are breaking all over the place between rich and poor. By chapter 8, they're sharing the gospel in Samaria, like the Samaritans were a people group that these, these young Jewish Christians had huge tension with, but instead of rejecting connections with them, the Holy Spirit drives them to break down these barriers. By chapter 10 of Acts, the gospel is being preached amongst the Gentiles to a Roman family, like Peter himself. Peter is, is kind of reluctant about this initially, but then the Spirit of God fills these people too. So think about this, a small Jewish movement within 10 chapters has become a multicultural movement, breaking down racial, ethnic, and cultural barriers. What happens when the Holy Spirit comes? Transformation, but a transformation around how we treat people. Like, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul says there's quite literally no point in being able to do supernatural things if you don't love? Well, we see that worked out in Acts. The work of the Spirit changes us, and we know it's the Spirit because, let's be honest, we tend towards exclusion and separation and superiority. To be honest, we naturally kind of tend towards selfishness and not being kind to others. But the transformation that moves us towards kindness and compassion in how we treat others in Acts, that's a transforming work of the Spirit. But here's the thing, that change, it's external to us. It comes from the Spirit. So the narrowing gap between Spirit and creation, it isn't a to-do list for you. It's not a list of performance standards that, that you will ultimately fall short of like every other performance standard that you're asked to reach. It's not a demand that just becomes another quest for transformation like we talked about last week. No, what we see in Acts is that transformation is still a grace gift. It's something that happens to you as a follower of Jesus. Like you don't need to look any further than Paul for an example of this. In Acts chapter nine, we meet him as a pretty distinct enemy of the church. He is quite literally killing Christians. <laughs> but the impact of his encounter with Jesus and the Holy Spirit turns him around and he becomes the primary gospel worker for the rest of the book. Like he wasn't on a step program to improve himself. The spirit literally spun him around. And Paul himself then explains this to us in Galatians chapter five and verse 22. When he's describing the spirit's work in our lives, he lists things that we should expect to see in ourselves as the people of God who are full of the spirit. Love 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They're phenomenal characteristics for a human, but they could also be kind of overbearing if you set them up as your goal to try and master or achieve them. If you take them on as your New Year's resolution, you will fail. But notice how Paul describes them. Fruits. He calls them fruits of the Spirit. Now fruit, fruit is something that comes from health and growth. Fruit happens on healthy trees, in healthy farms, in healthy soil. See, the fruits of the Spirit are not the result of our attempts to become better people. The fruits are the result of something external to us. They happen through the Spirit of God. So Paul's not saying in Galatians, work really hard so that this all kind of goes better for you. What he's saying is, let this transformation happen. So what does this mean? Well, I, I like to think about it like this. If the transformation in my life comes from something external to me, then my circumstances no longer need to define my growth. Like we are not all in the same boat. Life does not deal fair hands. Some people get it easier than others. But if the transformation that the Bible describes for us comes from something external to us, from the Holy Spirit, then I can grow in Christ as a Jesus follower regardless of my circumstances. I can, I can become more loving, kind, good. I can become more gentle, patient. I can become more Christ-like in a pandemic or in a difficult work situation, in a tough family crisis, in an overwhelming financial situation. It also means that my attitudes, my behaviors, my mindsets can be kind of loosed from my excuses. If the Holy Spirit can change the racist and sexist views of an ancient community, can the Holy Spirit transform our attitudes towards each other? You see, the Spirit has narrowed the gap between the spiritual and the physical, and it calls us to navigate something Something of what I like to think of as the holy middle. Living out our ordinary lives while the Holy Spirit transforms and changes us. See, the Holy Spirit is present with us and in us. So God is with us and present in us. And that's the source of our transformation, our change. So what does this mean? Well, perhaps think about it like this. Don't turn your Christianity into another self-improvement project. Rather realize that in Christ, through the Spirit, your transformation, your change, is a gift from God. So may you relax. In a world obsessed with improvement and to-do lists and demands, may you know the transforming power of the Spirit the divine hover, the narrowing gap. May you find your view of God's world broadened, and in doing so, may you receive his good gift, 
the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace to you all, my friends.